Hello, and welcome to the 19th episode of How Not to Suck. At the Stocks, this is your host, Dan Hansen, and as per usual, I got two disclaimers for you. Disclaimer number one, this is a podcast for entertainment purposes only, and disclaimer number two is this podcast is extremely not safe for work, so please consider yourself warned. So yesterday, the CFA Society of Chicago's book club, hosted by yours truly, read and discussed Extreme Ownership. How U.S. Navy SEALs Lead and Win by Jacko Willink and Leif Babin. Now, a professional would have learned how to pronounce these guys' names before doing the podcast. But that is neither here nor there. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go over very briefly some of the chapters in the book that really stuck out to me. And then I'm going to talk about how the principles in this book, um, how I've really used them to apply in my own life. I've really applied the principles in this book to my own life. And finally, I'm going to go into a brief political rant, so look, look forward to that. All right, so uh, starting off, the, the first chapter of the book it shares a title with the, the book, Extreme Ownership. And in this chapter, um, you have a blue-on-blue blue incident, which is military code for friendly fire. So the Navy SEAL and the authors, you know, one, one of the guys was a commander on the ground in Iraq back in you know, the height of the war. And so he's coordinating... You know, Navy SEALs and other U.S. soldiers and Iraqi soldiers. And, you know, it's in an urban environment and it's it gets confusing which building is which building. Okay. And so they thought that enemy combatants were in a building, but it turns out it was U.S. soldiers in that building. So it's a miscommunication. And so you had uh, U.S. soldiers injured, you had an Iraqi soldier dead, and at the end of the mission, of course, his, C- his COs, his commanding officers, want to know who's to blame. And so he looks at everything, he looks at all the mistakes that were made that led up to this uh, horrific event, right? And so what he does is he goes up in front of everyone, all his men, all his commanding officers, and he asks the question, who was responsible for this? And after a few moments, a fellow SEAL raises his hand and goes, I was responsible because I didn't radio in my position. And the author goes, no, you were not responsible. Who was responsible for this? And another soldier raises his hand and says, I'm responsible because, you know, et cetera. And, the, and this happens a few times, and the author keeps saying, no, you're not responsible. And, the, and he just goes, look, the person who was responsible for this was me. And the reason he says that is because he was the commander on the ground. Yes, mistakes were made. This guy didn't call in his position. This guy misread a map. You know, this guy misidentified a building, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone made mistakes. Okay. But he was the commander on the ground. And he was the one responsible for his men and his mission and making sure that something like this didn't happen. And so that's the core principle that uh, that runs through the entire book. It's, of course, the name of the book, Extreme Ownership. And it's you, you can find this book in the business section, but I really read it more of as kind of a... Like self-help is probably probably not the right word, but but more in that kind of vein. And just like guiding principles to Im- improve your uh, your mental outlook on life, but it also reads as a military history 
book. So let me let me back up a second. So this is the way the book is structured. Every book, every chapter starts off with a story about these guys' days during the height of Iraq, the Iraq War. And then a couple pages explaining the principle in case you know you kind of missed it. And then the end of the chapter is a story about their days now as business consultants. And they really do a great job at driving that line between those two dots. They really, they really skewer that uh, extremely well. So um, the book is extremely readable. It's an easy read. It's a fun read. You blow through it in a couple days. And it has principles that I think will make, I think will make everyone's life easier. And I'll, at the end, I'll, or the middle rather, I'll get into how like I've applied a lot of these principles to my own life and etc. So let's see. Let's, let's go on to some other chapters though before I do that. Let's see. Uh, the second chapter is actually a story about Hell Week. For those that don't know what Hell's Week is, it's part of the Navy SEALs training where they spend five to seven days, I forget what, just constantly being tortured. They're just rucking and running and doing push-ups and swimming, and they have these World War II rafts that weigh 200 pounds each, but they weigh more with sand and water in them. And these crews of seven have to just take them and run up and down obstacle courses and run out into the water and, you know, back again on the beach. And for, you know, for five, seven days, at least get to sleep for like maybe a couple hours. I mean, they get to eat three times a day, but, you know, they're burning up way more calories than they're taking in, of course. And then uh, at the end of it, I think this is according to Jesse Ventura's book, I Ain't Got Time to Bleed. At the end of it, you have to read three books and write three book reports. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. But in any case, that wasn't in this book. That was a different book. But in any case, so back to the rafts for a second. So there were two teams. One team that was just kicking everyone's ass. They're getting first place in every competition. They had another team that was doing the opposite. They were getting their ass kicked. They were losing. They were coming in last in every competition. And that losing team was just bickering and infighting, and it was your fault, and it was your fault, and it was your fault. No one wanted to take the responsibility. So what the author did, he was the, the drill sergeant for the, for the training for the boot camp, whatever you call it, for Hell's Week. And he switched the leaders. Okay. So the leader of the best team, he was, of course, getting the short end of the stick, but he didn't complain. He went over to the worst team. And the leader of the worst team, he, he was happy as a pig and shit. He got to go to the best team. Okay. So what do you think happened? Well, naturally, since it's an example in this book, what happened is, is those two, team, those two teams became neck and neck. That worst team under new leadership, was able to rise, become one of the best teams. And the team that had been the best didn't fall apart. It just, you know, just wasn't as competitive because the leader wasn't as good, but the team was still competitive. So that was an interesting chapter. I forget what the unifying principle of that chapter was. I guess I could look it up. Believe. Was it believe? That's a, no, no bad teams, only bad leaders is the principle of that book. And uh, just really quick, a couple other uh, a couple other principles. There was one chapter on simplifying. So if something is so on a mission, if it's too complex, there's a great line. You ever see the Big Lebowski where John Goodman's character is like, the beauty of the plan is the simplicity. If plans get too complicated, it all goes to shit. And of course, it goes to shit anyway, like everything in that movie. But uh, it's especially true in warfare. It can't be too complicated. Everyone has to be on the same page, understand the plan, understand the why. So this was actually an example of where the consulting story was more interesting than the, the, the Iraq story. And 
basically this this company they were consulting for uh, had this reward system, this incentive system that just none of the employees understood. They get a paycheck and be like, okay, I made a $500 bonus this week. Last time it was $300. I have no idea what I did differently. And so they didn't, they didn't know why they were getting paid more or less. And management was frustrated because they put in this incentive program and it wasn't working. It wasn't incentivizing people to do what they'd wanted to do. And so the author was like, okay, what is a, you know, explain the incentive program to me. And so they did and they started and they kept going and going and going. And the guy would be like, is that it? And they go, well, there's a little bit more. And they keep going and going and going. And is that it? Well, there's a little bit more. And, it's, and eventually it's like, okay, like this is ridiculous. This is comically complicated. You need to simplify. The incentive program has to actually be understood. And the example he uses like with rats, right? So in the laboratory, if the rat does something good, he gets a sugar cube. If he does something bad, he gets an electric shock. But if there's a delayed response, like if he gets a sugar cube the next day, or if he gets the electric shock a few hours after he did the negative activity, he's never going to associate the activity with the reward or the punishment. And so bringing it back to the incentive program, when it's too complicated, it, the human brain works much the way as a, a rat's brain in this instance. It has trouble drawing the connection between their actions and the reward, just as the employees did with their paychecks. So anyway, that was an interesting chapter. And finally, there was a chapter on priorities. I actually forget the story from that chapter. Prioritize and execute. But I can tell you, I had a teacher in college who would always say, if you have more than two or three priorities, you don't have priorities. And I love that. You always need to know what your priorities are. Okay. So like, for example, right now, my top priority is just passing level three of the CFA. You know, like that gets, you know, that, that trumps everything else. Okay. And so I make time every day to go do that. So I just go to the library for three hours and there's no distractions there. I go in the quiet room and I knock out three hours of studying, you know, on, on, on my study days. So, you know, prioritize it. And I know if I, if I get it pushed back too late, I'm not going to want to do it. So I just make time for it. So, all right. Uh, let's see what I want to get into now. Real quick, how I, I already kind of started this, but how I apply some of these principles in my own life. So, when I was younger, um, I never wanted to take responsibility for anything. When I was younger, I, I'd blame my parents. I'd blame my teachers for a bad grade. I would blame everyone but myself. And I was absolutely miserable. I was depressed. And I realized when I started taking responsibility for my own actions, it was a breath of fresh air. It was liberating. It was freedom. Because I was like, yeah, my life sucks, but I'm the reason it sucks. I'm not a victim anymore. I'm responsible for my own life, and I can go make it better. You know, I can go back to school. I can start dieting and exercising. I can do, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I put my life on a track that I want to, that I want to be on. And so it really is, uh, it, it really is liberating, that moment you just take responsibility for shit. And uh, like I said, it's empowering. You stop becoming the victim. You stop becoming a, uh, a spectator in your own life, and you start becoming the driving force. So, and now for a counterexample, I promised a brief political rant. So, 
I admit I've never read the book. I wouldn't waste my time reading it. But I did read, uh, you know, articles or reviews about this book online, and they all happen to kind of say the same thing. So if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but this is what I'm going with. Hillary Clinton's book, What Happened? I believe is the name of that book, right? And What Happened, I think is the name. Okay. According to what, what I read, she blames everyone but herself for her loss to Donald Trump in the 2016 election. She blames her advisor. She blames her husband. She blames Bernie Sanders. She blames Donald Trump. She blames the American people. Now, let's back up for a second. She blames Bernie Sanders. She blamed her opponent for not surrendering. Because For those that really don't follow politics, it was a drawn-out primary. And the longer you spend in a primary, the less time you have to spend on your, uh, your, you know, your national opponent. So, so like Trump, he, he beat the Republicans before Hillary beat Bernie. So she, he was able to turn entirely onto Hillary, you know, a few weeks or a month or so ahead of when Hillary could just specifically turn on him and stop fighting Bernie. And of course, spending resources and time and money and everything. And so, but she, but she blames her opponent for not surrendering. Like that's what, how, how, that's just the epitome of not taking responsibility for your own actions. All she had to do was be a better candidate and beat her opponent uh, sooner, you know. Or another example, just as long as we're jumping around, uh, in football, I always thought it's ironic that teams will blame the kicker when the kicker misses the field goal at the end of the game. You know, they need like three points to win, kicker goes up there, and boom, misses off the uprights. And they ostracize him. And it's like, well, if the team had played better, it wouldn't have gotten down to just a field goal. Or they blame the referees for a call. And it's like... If they had played better, it wouldn't have came down to one referee call. So until you've yourself made no mistakes, you don't get to complain about other people's mistakes. And one example I'm going to close with, and this is probably the lamest example that I've ever given about anything, but I'm, I want to tell this story. Uh, so the closest I've ever gotten to come, believe it or not, I actually did used to want to be a Navy SEAL. That's actually why I learned to swim when I was 15. I was like, you know what? If I want to be a Navy SEAL, I better learn how to swim. So I started, I taught myself how to swim. I still swim like a drowning horse. It's horrible. But in any case, uh, the closest I've ever got to action was Call of Duty, which is, of course, a video game for those that don't know. And uh, so the, you, know, you play it online against random strangers, except the other team was made up of a clan. And for those that don't know, a clan is a group of people that, that play together uh, consistently. And so they develop tactics and code words, and they're constantly communicating, and they they optimize their loadouts to synergize you know, across the different players. They'll have different guns and, and equipment and special abilities that synchronize well. And my team was just a bunch of random assholes that sucked. And it would have been, after a couple matches of getting our asses kicked, it would have been very easy to rage quit. But instead what I did is I took it upon myself to just play, a, just play fucking perfectly. I wasn't going to bitch about, for every time an opponent died, that was a time I couldn't die. And so I, I, I'll, I'll cut this short. So I just maximized my loadout to do the most damage. So it was high, high risk, high reward. So basically I had to have pinpoint accuracy. I could kill people in one shot, but if I missed, I was fucked. And so um, I don't think I won, <laughs> but I played some of the best damn games of my life. And in, the, in between matches, you can hear the other team. And they're all accusing me of cheating, which for those that play games online, that's like, 
That's how you know you did good. That that's like the pinnacle of excellence. It's like a badge of honor when the other team accuses you of cheating, which I of course did. No, I'm joking. Of course I didn't cheat. But anyway, so let's see. Anything else I want to talk about? Nope. That was pretty much it. So yeah, this is extreme ownership. And in case I didn't hit the hit the point home well enough, uh, this book is in the business section. You can read it as a military history book, or you can read it more as like a you know, like a guiding principles, self-help, for lack of a better word, kind of book. And I, and one more, so, okay, so let me, let me just address one point really quick. So some people might make the argument that, well, if someone else made a mistake, why should I take responsibility? And the idea is that responsibility isn't a hot potato. Like, oh, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. Responsibility is a pie, right? Like we're all partly responsible. And the idea behind the book is it just take responsibility? Like you have a pie, you're responsible. Don't bitch about the other people that made mistakes. You made a mistake. You can fix that. And going back to Hillary really quick, this is kind of falling apart at the end here. But if from the 2016 election, all the liberals can gather is that, you know, uh, Americans are racist and that's why they voted for Trump. And if they're just pointing the finger, that's not setting themselves up for victory. If Democrats aren't going to take responsibility and say, well, you know, we didn't campaign in the Rust Belt as much as we should have, or we didn't have a, a message that enough Americans identified, et cetera, et cetera. If they don't take responsibility for it and admit they made mistakes in the 2016 election, then how are they going to beat them in the 2020 election? See? If you don't take responsibility for your failures, then you can't change anything and turn it into a victory. So anyway, hopefully I drove that point home. If not, I'm sure repeating it ad nauseum isn't going to help. So I'm done. This has been Extreme Ownership, How U.S. Navy SEALs Lead and Win by Jacko Willink and Leif Babin. Recommend it highly. This has been your host, Dan Hansen. This has been How Not to Suck at the Stocks. Over and out.